COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic, and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state, and this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadjo Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, yo, listen, this is a special episode. We're talking to Dr. Vinay Prasad, the one and only host of Plenary Sessions, great podcast, author, associate professor. He's just been a huge advocate for balance, nuanced discussion about all things COVID. So here you're going to hear us talk about, you know, lessons from COVID, what we want to see change and lessons moving forward so that when that next pandemic comes, we'll be in a better spot to handle things. And I, I got to tell you, this man's a legend. His advocacy for schools, his voice has just been tremendous. So before jumping into it, let me tell you about Solving Wellness, one of the initiatives we are so proud of here on Quadcast. Listen, we, we hear you about physician burnout. We hear you about healthcare provider burnout peri-pandemic, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, this is going to be a remaining issue. So we, we set up Solving Wellness at solvingwellness.com where you get virtual fitness classes, yoga, nutrition tips, cooking classes, how to manage stress, productivity tips, and more. It's been in such a great journey so far. We're over 155 members as of today. And uh, it's just been a great journey. So if you want to join us, go to solvingwellness.com. $99 for the year, $9.99 per month. First month is free. Tadow. All right. Without further ado, I'm just going to bring Vinay in the mix. The legend, author, podcaster, hemoncologist, public health guru. I mean, I can't say enough. All right, let's do this. Quadcast Nation. Boy. If you can see me now, first of all, I am pacing because I am so excited to bring Vinay Prasad into the mix. Vinay, buddy, welcome to the Quadcast. Quadjo, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad we finally got to sit down and chat. Oh my goodness. It's like, 
I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. I've been uh, vice I've actually, versa, vice versa. I've been uh, <laughs> I've been pawning your guests. This is how I found Stefan. Oh, um, yeah. Like you know, it's just the show has been so vital in terms of my sanity for uh, in regards to this pandemic. So thank you, my friend. Uh, thank you. Thanks for all you do as well. Oh, I appreciate that. I don't know where else to start, but to say like, you know, if we were to look back at this pandemic, I know we're in the middle of it now, but like, what are these lessons or these kind of um, like, yeah, lessons that you've taken away that you, we really should learn uh, moving forward, like stuff that we should be, you know, with the next pandemic be like, yo, remember this? <laughs> Hopefully we don't hit it up the same way. Like what were some of the glaring things that struck you as like, what the F were we doing? Yeah, that, um, that's a great question. You know, I mean, I put them in a few buckets for you and we can decide you can talk about whatever one you want. Um, the first bucket is like the early initial response. And I think a lot of people are going to go back in time and scrutinize, you know, had the United States been uh, a little bit more proactive? Have we taken this seriously? Had we not been so dismissive in January, February, along with many nations around the world? Was there an opportunity to contain this before it escaped China? Now, that's a little bit outside my purview. Um, so we'll set that aside. Then I think the next thing, the next big bucket is, the more we mixed politics and science, we were all poorer for it. And we saw, you know, we had a very polarizing president in this country and he did and didn't do a lot of things. And very quickly, everyone who's on the political left uh, disagreed with him on every issue and everyone on the political right agreed with him on every issue. And so when it comes to an issue like schools, which is an issue, you know, you and I both have uh, spoken a lot about, uh, that's an issue that shouldn't be so political. It should be about the science and it wasn't. And that is a huge failure. And then the last bucket that we could talk about is um, to some degree, social media technology, it was supposed to free us uh, to make it better. Uh, but to some degree, it kind of trapped us and it led to a lot of the problems, I think, with the response, which I'm happy to get into. Oh, man, because in some ways, you know, I, I honestly think some of the positive outcomes when it comes to, at least in my world, taking care of ICU patients, yeah. you know, social media was a gift in some ways, because it was like, hey, man, there's this talk about delaying intubation for some of these patients. Right. Hey, we're, we've been tapering with with the Dex, uh, Decadron. Maybe yeah. this should be something that some of us should implement. But holy cow, when it came to some of the nuance, when it came to some of the dialogue on here, like it did. I mean, it ties into the political angle, but it also ties into this, the like dichotomous approach to so many of our our issues. Like it was you know, it was wild. You're right to point out that it's a double edged sword. And that's what keeps me going back for more because I learned some things that I wouldn't learn elsewhere. Mm. So you're right. We had, we had that. But then the other side of the sword is that it makes people really tribal. It makes people agree with their buddy or, or their group, uh, even if they're not using their brain and even if they're not thinking through the issues. Um, it's, it, it, tr it truly cuts both ways. And then the other thing I'd add is um, Zoom. You know, if we didn't have Zoom, the response would have been really different. I firmly believe uh, specifically, you know, Zoom is what allowed a lot of upper middle class white collar workers to not get laid off. If you had this yes. 15 years ago and you stopped showing up to work, you'd get laid off. Now with Zoom, you could keep your jobs. The moment upper middle class white collar workers could keep their jobs, they just frankly stopped caring about actually putting resources into things that would matter. The people who are working as line cooks in the kitchen who are doing construction, uh, that became uh, a matter of, uh, of moral failure. We said that, you know, it's up to them to stay in their own house, uh, mm. never mind the fact that they need to go in person and work while we could comfortably have our jobs uh, by not going in person. Now, you and I, of course, are different because we're doctors. 
you know, I, I went in person throughout the whole pandemic, but um, I think Zoom actually um, trapped us in this response. It made us more polarized, um, pushed us towards individual responsibility and not what public health really means, which is resources. Man, it, it's so true. It's like the loudest voices too on Twitter. They were like legit able to stay at home, do their Zoom calls, keep their jobs, and like maybe even like have an opportunity for growth within their within their whatever job sector that they were in and putting out these value judgments on people that can't stay home. It's an interesting, actually, I've never heard that put in a perspective before, actually, that Zoom actually set us back, you know, and, and put us in, in a in a in a more comfortable, like a, too many people in a comfortable spot. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's, you're articulating it, which is that uh, many of the quote unquote pundits, they're sitting at home all day uh, on Zoom, carrying on with their whole life, getting promoted even. There's a lot yeah. of promotions. I keep going to everything, getting promoted. Okay, you're getting promoted. Um, but that's a luxury you have because your job doesn't require you to show up face to face and work. Mm -hmm. And if you really didn't have that, here's what would have happened. Um, I think upper middle class people would not have allowed there to be widespread layoffs. We would have naturally fallen into a harm reduction philosophy. We would have said, you know what? You go in Monday, Tuesday. I go in Wednesday, Thursday. We wear masks. We keep some distance. We set some rules up, but we get back to it. We keep mm. schools going because, you know, we got to have schools. So if we can all go back to work a little bit, we try to make it work. And that kind of harm reduction philosophy is lost when you're at home on Zoom all day. Then you just say, like, why isn't everyone else as good as me? Uh, mm. And you made it a moral issue. And I think that trapped us. It really did. It, it really did. And it's amazing to, you know, you touch on like the public health approaches, because like most of the people I know that are like fundamental public health, they all preach the same thing. Like, uh, you know, uh, harm reduction is key. I mean, I, I think the HIV epi uh, epidemic really kind of helped um, steer that that messaging in that uh, in that approach. But wow, I don't I honestly maybe it was a Zoom like the fact that we were all Zoomed ologied. But I, I just I couldn't believe that this was not the way. Do you know what I mean? Like, because maybe I'm being a bit biased here, but it just seems like it makes so much sense. Like we need to maintain as much normal life as we can and and really think about how to reduce harm. But to try and eliminate COVID, like I don't know, like in, in Cali, like we had a we had the COVID zero um um, yeah. kind of approach in Hashtag Ontario. zero COVID. Yeah. 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 It. Was, was that a movement in your part of the woods too, or no? Yeah. It's a movement uh, that's put forth by people who have never implemented anything in the real world. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, they, they tell things like, look, if we all wore an N95 for 15 days, 21 days, COVID would go away. I was like, well, you, that's, that's easily said by someone who's never worn an N95 for eight hours at work. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'll tell you, it'll break your nose off. I mean, it hurts after a while. You know, you and I've worn N95s. If I, if I have to do a procedure with an N95 on 90 minutes later, I want to get out of that room and take it off. Um, mm -hmm. It's not sustainable to ask people to do that. The other thing they say, it was, you know, if everyone just completely severed all social ties, stayed in our house, you know, COVID will go away. But the thing is, we're a primate who has needs. And one of those needs is socialization. Um, we can't do that. And, and there's some people who have jobs, they literally can't do that. Or you won't be able to go to the grocery store and get the chicken you want to eat. Um, and so they didn't take that into account. And I think that is a great failure of the pandemic, that kind of closed mindedness. Yeah, the other thing you brought up, too, that I, I think... Um really, really irked me in terms of perspective, like in terms of the response was a lot of the the people at home, whether they're on Twitter, whether they're policymakers, they weren't ever, they were rarely in it. They were, you know what I mean? Like they were rarely seeing patients to have that perspective because 
I think that was a, a, a big factor in terms of your overall approach. Like if you are not having to see patients, whether they're COVID or not, to be honest with you, because then when you're not seeing COVID patients, you also see the sequelae of, of some of the restrictions, whether that's delayed cancer diagnosis, lack of screening. Um, but really I was surprised. I mean, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but it was just, it was just disappointing to hear so much, judgment and and such loud voices coming from cats that don't see COVID. Exactly. You know, yeah, you know I, I, I feel that there are two things that being a doctor gives you perspective on. One is we've had so many patients where you're like, oh, I, I wish you'd take these three blood pressure medicines. Patient doesn't want to take three. You meet them at one. You meet yes. them at, you know, you meet them where they are. Okay. So that's one. So we have some, re, some realistic perspective that if people don't do everything you want, doing some of what you want is better than doing none of what you want. Cut back on smoking. Don't quit. You know, if people don't want to quit all the way, cut back. That's progress, right? So we've always, you know, we've grown up with that in medicine. The next thing, you know, I'm in person in clinic. Uh, I have a, um, uh, you know, surgical mask on, but I didn't have an N95. And I'm seeing people who are unscreened. Uh, and, and I view that as, you know, that's the duty of a doctor. That's my duty. And so when people who sit at home all day on Twitter uh, talk about how no one should accept any risk uh, at all, zero risk when we go back to school, um, that to me is untenable. Schools is always a trade-off. It's always a balance. And some people may have to take a little bit of occupational risk and we've quantified it. It's not that much for teachers and people who work in schools. It's, it's not that much. And the benefit to the kids is tremendous. It's an order of magnitude larger, two orders of magnitude larger. And yet they were unwilling to even talk about any risk greater than zero. That to me is is ridiculous as, as a doctor who's going in there every day doing my duty. And, you know, that's the word that I, I swear, I think it's fallen out of the lexicon, but it's a, it's a word that my parents taught me, which is that one of the things in life you have is a duty. And what is a duty? Yes. A duty means you got to do it because that's what you're that's what your, your purpose on this planet is. And it doesn't, and even when it's difficult and hard and might put you a little bit of a risk, we doctors swear an oath to have a duty. Um, and I wish other professions felt the same way. Yeah. I, I wonder what, man, I'm just, I'm a bit uh, moved at that, that whole concept of duty, like just articulating it, articulating it that way. Cause that's what it was actually. When I, I look back at March, you know what I'm saying? I, I saw we were I was part of the group that saw our first COVID patient roll through our ICU. We were all scared as fuck. We were terrified. We saw what was happening in in, in yeah. you know in Italy and New York and at the time Washington State was getting lit up. I'm like, okay, here's here's our turn. But there was that duty. There was that sense that we got to do this. People are relying on us. And at the end of the day, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and say, we serve, man. Yeah. We did our part. And I'm I'm actually quite shocked at the lack of wanting to step up, you know, that duty, that, that willingness to say, like, it's our turn. You know what I mean? Um, but you put it well. You put it well. Yeah, I, uh, I, I guess um, uh, it, it, it matters. I mean, I think that's 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 something that has always mattered in human history and will always matter. That sense of it's your purpose. That's what you're here for. You're not yeah. here. You're here for the easy time. Sure. You know, we've enjoyed, you know, the peace times, but this is wartime. And now you yeah. got to still do your duty. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think and for me, like as a, a dad too, like, you know, to me, it's also something to role model for my kids. It's like, hey, you know, like dad stepped up during this time because we had to. This is what you're going to do when you're asked to serve, when you're asked to step up, like just to have that as a role model without even having to voice it. Like my oldest is about uh, he'll be eight and a half and he sees it already. You know, like he's saying, like you, you went to work like you you went to work during the, the time when we were staying at home. You know what I mean? Like 
yeah. I, it, it means a lot. Actually, I was, I'm actually quite as a, cause you don't have kids, right? Like not that you're aware of. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I, I, I try not to get into personal stuff on. Okay, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll sorry, skip sorry. out on that. I was going to ask you, but okay, let me frame it this way. What kind of, what pushed you into the school fight? Like that was, you know what I mean? Like that was, uh, everyone's got their own reasons for like really, you know, pushing certain uh, agenda pieces, but. Yeah, I, what, I guess. Yeah, what, what pushed you? What got me interested in the issue? I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about it. I'll be honest with you. When June came I, and July came, uh, you didn't hear a pin. You didn't hear a, you didn't hear anything out of me. I mean, I didn't know it. I didn't know what schools actually did. I mean, I'll admit I'm a I'm a doctor. I'm focused on cancer medicine. That's my that's my research interest. That's where my mind is. Um, I started seeing people comment more and more. I started seeing the call for schools to be closed in the fall. And I decided, you know what? I got to sit down and educate myself. I got to learn, you know, what is the benefits, the pros and cons of opening school? How much do schools spread the virus? How much do schools help kids? And the more I read throughout July and into August, the more I started to feel like I think we're making a mistake. Um, the benefits of schools, uh, it's like the last tattered ladder of upward mobility in the United States. Um, and the risks of schools are, we already had a ton of data out of Europe that the risks were um, much smaller than people thought. This was not the virus that's being driven by school spread uh, in contrast with other respiratory pathogens like influenza. And so by the time end of August, September came by, I started to have people on my podcast, people who were experts in this topic, um, people uh, who are experts in um, schools and what they do, like Vlad Kogan, who's a political scientist who studies this, people who are experts in viral transmission in kids, like uh, Alistair M Monroe from the UK. Oh, and um, I started to get some economists on there talking about the, the perils of, of online schooling and how that's not the same. And, and the more I put it together, and then I started to read people like Emily Oster, who was, you know, way ahead of the curve on this issue. Um, and I viewed it like a doctor views things, which is, you know, life is about trade-offs. What are the pros and cons of these strategies? Nothing's perfect. You know, we don't get to have a perfect world. And the more I read about it, the more I realized it was uh, a great error to close schools. It was the biggest error of the pandemic. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I kind of alluded to this before, but you, you really were inspirational in terms of like voicing your concerns. Uh, you, Monica, and uh, like, cause I, I gotta say like, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's funny how you could get slack for sticking up for kids. Like it, I'm sure you got pushed back in all, uh, in, in many, uh, avenues, especially within social media, but yeah, this is the one thing that I, you know, whether it's, I mean, I think in the States it was heavily politicized, but yeah, it's just amazed me at how we were, had this inability to follow the data. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, there's going to be always some subjectivity in the, in the data in, in terms of like, you know, weighing like, you know, uh, like the levels of, of evidence. But it just it was it was baffling at how we could ignore such clear signals towards, yes, the kids aren't going to be as at risk in terms of their own health. Yes, they're less likely to pass it along to, to adults and, and and to cause secondary attacks. And then the, the sequelae. Yeah, the sequelae of not having in-person school. I thought, you know, what I thought actually when I was when yeah. people started talking about like even just alone the 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 abuse the abuse that could be happening right. unnoticed. I thought that was going to be enough. I thought I that was would like, be enough, right? Yeah, you know. But wow, we we for some reason we just did not want to follow the follow the data. You know, I, I think you're putting it, you're putting your finger on it, which I think people didn't want to follow the data. People didn't want to consider trade-offs. There's a few reasons why. One is I think Trump came out early, said you got to get back mm. to school. 
And the moment he said it, many people, the extent of their thinking is that since he likes it, it must be wrong. Therefore, I'll do the opposite. And I think we see that over and over again in this pandemic where people identify someone they think is a bad thinker, problematic, um, and they simply do the opposite. But if you always do the opposite of someone you disagree with, you are uh, you're tying yourself to their thought process. You're not using your own brain. And I hate to say it, but many academic professionals, uh, that's the extent of their thinking. They just said Trump likes it. I'm anti-Trump. Ergo, I won't, I won't like schools. And they can't break out of that mindset. The next thing is, I think a lot of people in this debate have never really thought about an issue where there are pros and cons, where there are trade-offs. And they've never really made decisions where um, the gap between what actually happens in the real world and what sounds ideal in theory uh, is vast. And with schools, you know, you and I both know as doctors that um, um, not everyone has the same home life. Not everyone has the same resources. And when I saw people say like, well, you know, my kids are home and, uh, and they're doing okay. So, you know, it can't be that bad. I was like, your kids, your parents, your, your rich doctors, my friend. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, that's not everybody. That's not everyone. And the kids that are getting hurt by this are not going to be your kids. Your kids may also be hurt. I heard some people say, even though I'm a doctor, my kids are hurting. But the people whose kids are really hurting are not on Twitter all day. They may not even have an internet in their house. There, you know, we saw these photos of these poor kids outside in Taco Bell during to do their homework assignment. Um, I think the other thing I think we forget is that the European nations that push to keep schools open, we act like, you know, we're the only country on earth or in the US and Canada. Uh, in Europe, they pushed, they pushed hard because they knew it was important. The irony is it is even more important in this country than it was there because mm. they actually have upward mobility and sort of many other ways to, to move through society, to, to gain, uh, uh, to move up in, in, in social economic uh, fashion. But in the US, we have nothing other than public schools. And so I think it is a huge error. And I, I you know, I got some pushback for some tweets I said where I said, it's gonna be like the Iraq war. And why do I think that? I think when the Iraq war started, I heard there were very few people who came out and said, I'm opposed to the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Even of course, infamously, Hillary Clinton voted for it. Right. And, and, and Biden voted for it. However, as time went on, many people who were initially in favor of the Iraq war realized it was a colossal blunder. And, and now they act as if, you know, they were opposed to it all along. I think schools would be the same thing. There were many mm -hmm. people who thought it was okay to close schools for a year plus. Um, they're going to see more and more data. They're going to see the harms that they have been hidden and they're going to change their tune. And it's going to be the greatest policy uh, swing. Um, the last thing I'd say is that the damage is like, you know, uh, COVID has been terrible. And a lot of the damage of COVID has, is, is going to be tallied up in the next year or two years. But the schools is going to be tallied up over the next two or three decades, the damage from closing schools. It's going to be tallied up in, I would suspect, uh, increases in uh, teenage pregnancy, increases in gun violence, uh, decreases in, in first-generation kids going to college for the first time, decreases in upward mobility and political instability. When you have a population deprived of education and opportunity, you will get political volatility. We're already politically volatile, and that volatility may blow in a way you can't predict. And so I think it's going to be probably the greatest long-term blunder of the pandemic. Wow. No, I, I couldn't put it any more eloquently than that. It's, it's, it's just striking to me, like how short-sighted we could be with a lot of these policy moves, but specifically with, with the schools, like, and it, once again, it's not information that we don't know. We know socioeconomics matter. We know education matters. We've right. seen it. You know what I'm saying? And then we let our politics and uh, and other motives like really slow us down. I, I I really I was truly baffled at our ability to 
to not see the greater good. And some of it too, I, I do wonder like what, in terms of blunders with overall pandemic response, like how much group think was a part of this? Like when it comes to like you, you choose whether it's school closures, whether it's like uh, global lockdowns. Um, but I, yeah, like I, I wonder how much of this was like, we took out objective database driven approaches instead and just been, you know, our peers are doing this. We got to do the same thing. Like any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think you're onto something. I mean, I guess I would say there are lots of smart people in the world and there are lots of smart people in academics. And I always see students who are brilliant, but I always tell people that if you really want to do impactful science and here I'm talking, this is pre COVID. Yeah. I tell them it's, it's not just brilliance that counts. It's a few other traits. One, uh, defiance. Anyone who's ever done anything that really matters has a little bit of defiance. What does that mean? That means when somebody tells you something, you don't always immediately believe them. You try to figure it out yourself. And maybe one in 10 times, one in 100 times, you actually say, you know what? What they told me, I love this person. They're a nice person, but what they told me is bullshit. It's wrong. And I got to go against it. Okay. So you need that trait. And then you need the trait of actually getting, going the last mile, going from your idea, your tweet to like, writing that into something or building a data set and actually doing it. And I've said this to people for years that it's the most brilliant researchers are not the smartest. There are lots of smart people, but some people have not a bone of defiance in their body. They go with the flow and medicine as you and I both know, we select for people who have no defiance because mm. every step of the way beats it out of you or fires you if you show any, an ounce of backbone. And mm. so what you're left with is, as you say, groupthink, which is, you know, if the, if the party line is, um, uh, you know, and for a while, my understanding of Twitter was the major pandemic response was uh, stay the F home and wear an effing mask. That's all people tweeted right. over and over and over right. and over again. They tweeted that. Okay. So, so the, as if the problem was that people didn't know that that was the thing to do. Okay. So uh, if that's, and, and then what shocks me is that people just keep repeating it. No one has thought to ask themselves, well, where is it actually spreading? Who are those people? What can we do to provide resources to prevent that from happening? Uh, that's not what the, it's all about personal responsibility, which is to me fundamentally ironic because I think most people in the academy lean politically left. We on the political left, myself included, I'm, a, I'm on the political left. Um, we have never typically blamed individuals for systemic failures. And yet here we were so eager to do that. Uh, it was fascinating. Wow. Wow. No, it's, it's so True. Like we, we, we did do a lot of, I mean, I mentioned it before, a lot of shaming and in terms of like pointing towards individuals to like do your part, stay home as opposed to looking at, you know, how we could approach this systemically. You, 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 I love, man, I got I wrote this down cause I, I loved it. So that defiance piece and maybe cause I got a little bit of that edge. Yeah, you do. Too. Yeah. I, I'm like, fuck the man. Like, you know, like I just, but that's I, why. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's part of your, that's one of your gifts, actually. Yeah, no, and it's part of your gift, too. And I think one of the things that makes, that has been quite scary, actually, when it comes to all of this, um, has been the kind of censorship, yeah. censorship, not only on, you know, social media and, 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 and mainstream media, but also by, like, you know, colleges of, of, of physicians and surgeons at different jurisdictions because that defiance well there's one thing to be like called out on on social media or whatever like i can i'm never gonna meet these people i can live with that but it's the the threat of you know losing your license or being uh uh losing your academic appointment which we're seeing and I, to me i gotta tell you Vinay, is scary as hell it, it really is scary not only yeah. 
on a personal level, but as a scientist, as somebody that's trying to get, you know, want to see the better, the advancements of, of our craft. Like, I don't know what we are thinking when it comes to this personally. I agree with you so much. I mean, I think these people play dirty. That's what it is. It's playing dirty. And here's a, and here's a couple ways it manifests. One, there was uh, a faction of academics that believe it is sensible and reasonable for social media platforms to engage in censorship. And 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 we can we can tiptoe around it, but it is in fact censorship. Here are the things that are censored. One, you could not talk on Facebook for over five months about the possibility that the virus emerged from lab leak. I have no idea well, if yeah, it's lab leak or not, but what I do know is that banning smart people from even talking about it is fucking crazy. You yeah. banned it, you didn't even know. How are you banning this? Um, and yet that's, that's arrogance, that's just pure arrogance. The other thing that I think was problematic was, um, Marty Macri, he's a professor at Johns Hopkins. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which has their own vetting process. And he predicted that by April 30th, um, we would be at, quote, herd immune in the United States. That was labeled by third-party labelers on, on Facebook as uh, misleading, false and misleading. They dethrottled it, meaning it was harder to share and distribute. Um, here you have third-party people um, uh, who are actually basically saying they know better than the Wall Street Journal and this professor. Now, I don't know if Marty is right or wrong and I actually think someday somebody will actually do this analysis to see if the R not was less than, you know, one at that time. You know, was, was Marty right or wrong? Uh, of course, herd immunity does not mean there's no additional cases, which I think is a fallacy, but so somebody will actually check Marty, but that's not the point. The point is that Marty should be entitled to have an opinion as a professor of Hopkins. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the last example I'll give you is uh, Carl Hennigan. When the Danish mask study came out, Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson, Carl Hennigan is a professor at Oxford. He had an article in The Spectator where he said he interprets Danish mask to be a negative study and that the evidence for masks is unfavorable. Fine. That's his view. That wasn't how I wrote my own op-ed about it. And you can read it and see people can see what they think. I, I talk about the power issues of the study. But anyway, he's entitled to his view. I'm entitled to my view. We need to compete in the battle of ideas. Um, mm. However, Facebook, again, labeled that false and misleading, dethrottled it. And we see other examples of this. Uh, and I, can't, I, I keep a little running list. But here's why it's so scary. I mean, there are many people in our professions who are cheering this on. Yeah, good for Facebook. They're finally cracking down. By the way, have you been on that website? It's nothing but garbage. And they're cracking <laughs> down very selectively, very selectively on certain points of view. Um, it's a day. It's you're playing with fire, my friends. You don't see it right now. The wind is blowing in the way you like. It's blowing in the direction of people who are progressive ideologues. Uh, and to be honest, I'm a progressive too. So I kind of, you know, so, so we're sympathetic. But one day it's going to blow in a direction you don't like. And you really want this multinational bill trillion near trillion dollar company entirely unaccountably regulating speech in the public square for scientists people who are professors at universities you do not want this it mm. will burn you so badly and the fact they don't see that i think is uh, blows my mind i don't that's a part of, i mean there's so many aspects to that the fact that we don't see it and it doesn't bother us is something that is mind-blowing the second part is you know, I'll say, say it once I say it again. This sets us back. Like, I'm, honestly, like there were issues in the first wave that people would bring up, which were, were offside. You, you, you could not bring up seasonality. You couldn't oh, yeah, bring up right. the term herd immunity. Like yeah, stuff that like you would want to discuss to kind of look at our risk of third waves, risk of the summer, uh, how, how we should approach things. Like have a, a once again, database, informed decision for policies moving forward. And there were taboo topics, which shouldn't have never been taboo. Even now, oh taboo. man, like even now, like, uh, you know, the, I don't know if this is, 
we might get canceled for this, but like even the like I think uh the kids um vaccine discussion. Yes, the myocarditis, yeah. The myocard myocarditis. And like you know, it shouldn't be taboo. It's our youth, it's just so we can have more informed quality approaches to our vaccination rollout. And I don't know. I I I I mean I'll speak personally, I've been avoiding that thing like the plague on social media i'm just like i'm just gonna post this here no comments okay <laughs> well <laughs> i've got i've got two op-eds coming hopefully coming this week on vaccine induced myocarditis and kids i think it's a serious issue that needs nuance i yes. mean it needs new so here the cdc has two positions one position is give them all two shots don't give them anything at all that's their model but what about give them one shot, one shot. what about yeah. give, what about give one shot to high-risk people and maybe nothing to people at low risk or two shots to high risk and nothing to people at low risk or one shot to people at regular risk and two shots to high risk kids. Cause there are risk factors that predict bad SARS-CoV-2 outcomes. What about using uh, a lower dose? Does it have to be the adult dose? What about, you know, there are a whole host of other things we could talk about in between, uh, mm-hmm. but we can't talk about it because there's of course, explicit censorship, which we, we've talked about, but there's a second type of censorship you were alluding to where people start going after you. They email your boss, they complain mm-hmm. about you. They call you nasty things on Twitter, uh, that kind of chronic demoralizing. Um, I think the difference, the real difference culturally is that 20 years ago, people who I knew who were liberal progressives, um, we, we, for, we, we believed above all things that people have the right to say what they want. And now we no longer believe that. We believe that some speech should be curtailed um, because it is, quote, dangerous and hurtful. But the challenge, of course, is who decides what's dangerous and hurtful. And we have allowed through social media a lot of dumb people to make those decisions and not the smartest people. And the last thing I'd say is I think one of the reasons why this is happening so much is that we've been all shut down. Places that historically have been the sort of forums where you'd have these dialogues. Harvard would have a, uh, a symposia, three-day symposia at Harvard or Hopkins, where they'd invite people, fly them in, people with contrary and controversial viewpoints, and sit at a table and talk it out um, as educated people do. We don't have that anymore. And in fact, universities have abdicated their responsibility. They did very few um, university-led town hall sessions. Universities did very little to flesh out these dialogues around, you know, when the Great Barrington Declaration and Jon Snow people were in a fight, a university could have said, you know, we're going to have a forum to air out all these differences. They did not do that. And what they have done is allowed it to go to places like social media, where it's just about who gets the most likes and retweets. You don't even know who are clicking like, and, and it's problematic. And we've, so we've abdicated a lot of the responsibility. I think Mm -hmm. it's a, it was a, it was a, it was a mistake. Yeah. And, and moreover, you know, the algorithms on those social medias are pro adversarial, you know what I mean? Like they want more engagement, you know, so it it really is pushing the, you know, the chips against, against you. And so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. What, one thing I I wanted to say too, before I forget that I, I really appreciated your point, um, you know, I do a lot of media and, and as the AstraZeneca vit stuff was coming out, yes. you know, I was, I was, I was one to, to come out saying, yeah, take your, whatever you could get and what have you like the rest of us doing the party line, but I'll never forget. I think you were on Z dog and uh, you gave this great caveat of, of, of this is why I think, you know, these discussions are so important people like you spoke and, and said, like, if you are in an area I'll never forget this because I remember it almost like stopping the car to be like, I was an aha moment. If you're in an area where COVID is such a low risk, like in our country, it's like Nova Scotia, 
you know, or yeah. like one of the, the Eastern maritime like provinces. Yeah. Yeah. Provinces. And, and my God, the, in your risk, you're a 40 year old woman and your, your risk of getting COVID is so low and dying of COVID so low, whereas legit VIT might be more, at, more, more higher risk. And then the other point of, of that, what you said was that I'll never forget too, just tying to the kids in the myocarditis is once you get that safety signal, the early safety signal, you're going to see it amplified because Absolutely. now it's, it's on people's attention and man, but it was just an important lesson for me to, to kind of, to really, as a guy that does think of cost benefit often to, to really think, you know, really look at that benefit, really look at that cost and think about it at an even a more personalized level. Um, but it was, it was such a, an enlightening um, conversation, conversation because at the time I was like, once again, I was like, Take what you could get, people, doing mm-hmm. the party line. Uh, no, but yeah, I think, I thank you for that. Oh, well, uh, thanks for actually, you know, thinking about this issue. I mean, I think vaccines is an important issue to me. I mean, I think because, uh, you know, you and I, we doctors, were proponents of vaccines. I actually took care of a lot of people after an auto transplant where we sort of revaccinate them. So I've given probably more vaccines than a lot of these people on Twitter who, who claim to know a lot about vaccines. And of course, there is some tiny fraction of people in this country that are vehemently opposed to vaccines. They're, they've gained traction because, you know, 100 years ago, they wouldn't have a way to congregate. And now they have a way to congregate. That's called Facebook. And so they got these little strong community. And they're vehemently against all vaccines all the time. Anybody, and they say it causes all sorts of stupid things it doesn't cause. Okay, great. Okay. Um, the response to that is not to be pro every vaccine and everybody all the time. It's to use science and actually have some nuance and think about to whom is it beneficial and to whom is it harmful. And that means, you know, like me and, you know, I, I ran to get my mRNA vaccine. You know, uh, I was eager to get it uh, because I'm a healthcare worker and uh, I'm not as young as I thought as I think I am. Um, it was worth it. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a nuanced discussion in these particular situations, which is 12 to 15 mRNA second dose where myocarditis is high. You know, can we get away with one dose in that population? Can we dose reduce or something like that and get most of the benefit without the countervailing harms? Women and VIT, VIT is devastating. Um, and I think people didn't appreciate that, you know, when you first see the safety signal, you know, it's a voluntary reporting signal. There are people who have seen CVT and they didn't know what they were seeing and they didn't know they were seeing VIT because they didn't know the platelets were activated because they didn't send platelet factor four antibody testing. They didn't know any of that because it had never been described in the literature. And now they hear about it on the news and they go back and like, oh shoot, I just saw one last week. Maybe I should report that to the system. Mm. And so of course the one in a million initial estimate was going to be wrong. And now it's of course, you know, I said it was going to be wrong by one order of magnitude. I think I was spot on. Um, and it does change things. And I, like I said, in that video, you know, if you're in, if you're in India, you know, during the, that explosion, of course, go get it. Um, but if you're in San Francisco, uh, maybe wait for the mRNA, you know? I, so I think you can have those nuanced discussions. I worry that we have created two tribes. There's anti-vax. And then on the other extreme, we have anti-anti-vax, which are people who are not that thoughtful about risk and benefit, who are just unfailingly pro-vax. And they think they're actually doing us a service. They're actually doing us a huge disservice because they're not taking into account nuance and actual risk benefit. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I love it because it, it it's promoting more critical thinking skills. And I, this is, this is one thing, like I gave a talk to a bunch of high school students and I'm like, yeah, with all these school closures, listen, if you could learn one thing just with all this shit is like how to really think critically. And I, I got, I've been meaning to, one of the questions I've been meaning to ask you is like, how do you, like, how do you create balance in your, in your evaluations? Like when you are trying to learn about, for example, the school closures, like, 
are you actively saying like I've uh, I've read a lot about the uh, pro uh, school closures. I'm going to read against the cons. Are you a, a guy that typically will find somebody that you trust and like? I, I know the answer to this, but we'll, we'll rely on their opinion to be able to evaluate this. Like, how do you create that balance of, of perspectives in your, in your world? Yeah, it's a great question. I guess it's true for whether I read about a new drug to read about school closure, to read about masks, to read about a vaccine, which is, I don't know. I, uh, I, I, I don't trust other people, even my dearest <laughs> friends. So I tend to verify what I hear. Um, but I just make like a mental, a, a mental quadrant, which is okay. Um, you know, uh, school closure, uh, the way I thought about school closure was there's three groups of people. There's the kids involved, there's the staff involved, and there's the parents and society involved. And you could either do it or not do it, or maybe do something in between. And what would be the impact on all these different things? And so I go through, I'm like, well, what's the literature on what do schools do for kids and their upward mobility, their life outcomes, um, their, their ability to rise in income level, et cetera, et cetera. What do um, virtual schools do for kids? Do they actually do the same job as a contingent on the parents' resources. What do schools do for transmission? And we had a very nice study out of Germany. Um, you know, and so then I then the next thing I know is, you know, it's, I'm, I do a lot of methods work. So I look for studies with really good methods. Um, you know, and, and what is really good methods when possible, obviously randomization, when possible natural experiments. Uh, there was a great natural experiment early on in Germany, which was Germany had a staggered summer vacation schedule and they implemented a lot of COVID measures that was entirely separate from that summer vacation schedule. So they were able to sort of disambiguate one of the things we can't disambiguate in the US, which is we panic, we close schools and we do all these other things. And we go on TV and tell people like, stay the F home, we're panicking. And it's hard to separate what's the impact of the school closure from all those other things you do. But in Germany, they had this nice, elegant experiment and they had their analysis where they sort of found very little or no effect size. Um, and certainly they give you some ballpark for what the effect size might be. Now we've had some other studies that came out. They all have pluses and weaknesses. And I think one of the things that goes into this is when you read a study like the Texas study on schools or, or, or the study by um, uh, Chris Whaley uh, in Ember, um, uh, you, you have to like know a little bit about how these studies are done. And, and so it helps to kind of be in, our, in this field. Um, and then you have to kind of assess it and put it in these buckets. And so I do seek out, you know, studies that go against my assumptions. Um, there was one, I think, classic nature paper that said school closures had a huge effect. But one of the things they failed to do, one of the things they did was they lumped like kindergarten with college. And I'm like, that's not what we're talking about. Those are different. And, um, and uh, you know, so that's one problem. The other, one of the other problems that comes up is sometimes when colleges open, they also implement screening programs, which means you're going to find a lot of cases, um, even if, if that's uh, just because you're, you're looking a lot more than you did in other places. And so you have to take all these into account. Um, but that's roughly my framework. It's like on whatever issue, you build some buckets and you try to read in each bucket. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. And once again, something I think we need to be preaching even to the to the kids. Like one of one of the I call the the trainees the kids, and and uh, I'm big on to talking about decision making throughout the throughout my time with them. Like, how are you going to be? Uh, how are you going to be as objective as possible? Because the one thing that scares me in medicine or in life in general is like your decisions could be completely altered based on what you, when you ate, how much mm, sleep you had, right. Um, your most recent experience when, you know, if you did recently see that, uh, VIT, yes. everyone else, you're going to be screening for it like crazy. Um, <laughs> yes. but yeah, no, I, I really, uh, I think it's an important concept. I don't know how to ask this question eloquently, but if you were to go back 
and knowing what we know now about COVID, you know, in terms of general policies or principles, you know, what would you like to have seen different? And uh, I know it's a big question, but I, I think it's important because I know you know this isn't going to be our last pandemic. We, I, I, the goal I was hoping out of this talk is really to think about uh, the lesson so we could be pro, be more proactive the next time this something like this happens. Um, but what, what 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 kind of things would you want to see change in terms of uh, approaches? Like, for example, you, you know, if and when you you would like to have seen. Uh, blanket lockdowns when you would if or when you would want to see uh, how we could have uh, integrated more outdoors using outdoor spaces Um, so yeah the floor is yours Vinay well I mean it's a great question I guess uh, maybe I'll start with the the small and get to the big the small is like you know the UK did a great study called recovery they they basically said we're going to try to randomize all these hospitalized patients and learn some shit not just try shit um, which is something we're not good at in the United States we're not good at like learning we're good at just throwing the kitchen sink at people and so we did a lot of things in the early pandemic that probably contributed to uh, iatrogenic death we had a higher case fatality rate in the early throes of the pandemic some of that might be because there's some renegade doctor pushing TP on a lark or doing something else that was sort of a Hail Mary maneuver. The UK have a better way, which is when you're in such situations, just randomize people to all different strategies. You can test a lot of different drugs. So I think we got to do that. If the US wants to be dominant in biomedicine, you got to do that. The next thing is why stop at medicines? You should extend that to some policies. Like I think the mask story, it, it was so polarized and got everyone, you know, so worked up. Um, but we could have done a few elegant cluster randomized trials to answer a few questions, which is if you randomize counties to mask, mask face shield, surgical mask face shield, cloth mask, no face shield, all the, the sort of factorial randomized control trial to learn what do face shields do? What do masks do? What do goggles do? What does um, hand sanitizer do at the door do? What does, um, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You could have opened schools, um, but you could have, um, you could have randomized people to outdoor classrooms to three feet of distance, six feet of distance. There was sort of a three feet per six feet study. It wasn't a randomized study, but it could have been better. We could have randomized them to not wearing masks at lunchtime, to not wearing masks outside, to wearing masks inside. What does a cloth mask do in a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old? We don't know. The WHO says only do for five and up. The US CDC says two to five. That's a simple thing to randomize. There's equipoise, two major Associations have different views. We could have done that study. Um, from a broader standpoint, I think a failure was we could have, you know, there were there were a few people throughout this pandemic who had points of view uh, that were people were criticized. And I don't agree with all of the things anyone, probably anyone said. Um, we didn't need to throw them out. We could have found a way to actually create some table, you know, where there are people with different points of views. I'll just give you another analogy. When you get to the high level things in COVID-19, it's less medical decision-making and more foreign policy decision-making. By that, I mean, if you're debating whether or not the United States should assassinate a general from a foreign nation, what kind of evidence do you marshal for that? Well, you can't do a randomized trial. You can't do a controlled study. You can't even do a retrospective observational study because I don't think they've, we've assassinated enough generals perhaps to do such a study. How do, you do a, how do you even know if that's the right thing to do? Well, foreign policy, you go based on history, what smart people sort of postulate. You get people at the table who actually give the case against doing it. You tell me why I shouldn't do this. You tell me why I should do this. And you hear those points of view. I think we did a poor job of that. The last thing I'd say about the lockdowns, I think a real scientist will have to say, 
two things. One, we have a very poor idea of what a lockdown is. Uh, in other words, what's the definition of lockdown? Uh, what they did in Wuhan, where they're welding doors shut, and what they do in the U.S., where they uh, force businesses to close, those aren't the same things. So we need some definition of what we're doing. One is very draconian, and one is still very in aggressive. Um, the next thing we need to know is we, we should have tried to study when do lockdowns work? Under what circumstances? If the case rate is five per 100,000, can you drive it to zero? If it's 100 per 100,000, does it actually go to 95? Or maybe at some threshold, it doesn't do much because the cheating is enough to swamp the signal. Does it work um, in certain countries where they have certain sort of uh, obedience? My understanding is in Australia, they're much more obedient than they are in the United States. People will do what they're told to do. Uh, and you can see that reflected in our different gun policies. They were willing to turn over their guns. We've got 300 million guns under our pillowcase. Um, you know, we have very different cultures. Um, so I think the failure was not that lockdowns work or don't work. It's that we finished this pandemic and we don't know shit about when they work and if they work and how much they work. We don't know anything we knew, didn't know in the beginning. We might learn a little bit from some studies, but the fact we didn't learn anything is a fail. It's just total failure. We should be embarrassed. We're no better than the people, who, our ancestors a thousand years ago when the bubonic plague hit them. They learned nothing and we learned nothing about this. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm moved to think about some of the opportunities that we could have had here, like honestly. And it would, I, I think, I don't know how much of a flavor there was for some of the, you know, to, to evaluate these things. Like I think because of the political reasons and because of how feared yeah. so many people were in terms of, yeah. you know, would they be willing to not wear a mask? Would they be willing, um, you know, to, to be on an ex the <laughs> experimental side, but regardless, some of this could have happened, especially from the pharmace pharma uh, pharmaceutical approaches. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I think there was probably some lost opportunities, but- um, Pajo, I, I, let me just point out there, like I, I, your, your point is well taken that like, you know, we moved from early March where everyone said it was crazy to even wear a mask and we we're all fine not doing it to mm. by late March, everyone thought it was prudent to do it. My point there would be if you're in a late, and you're in early March time, you could do a randomized trial of nothing versus wearing it. That's easy. Yeah. But if you're in late March, you could do a randomized trial of surgical versus cloth Truth. or cloth versus Truth. N95 or, or something even in between, which is the guy who's working as the line cook in the kitchen. That guy needs an N95 because that mm. person's at super high risk risk and they're trapped in the kitchen. And then the other person outside on a jog, they need nothing at all. But you know, so there are all these ways we could have customized it. But I will say that if I were to say the two things that made that very difficult was that there are a lot of people who wear the, the jacket of a scientist who um, they, they, they became advocates rather quickly. And mm. so they turned it into catchphrases. And, and then the fact that Trump didn't wear it sealed the deal. Mm. The moment Trump didn't wear it, it was again, only his people don't do it. They're bad people. He's bad. He doesn't do it. And good people do it. And they do it all the time. You know, so the moment he didn't do it, it sort of just 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 made it political. And it yeah, was it's, it really is unfortunate how much got politicized, because I honestly I think there was like one of the missed opportunities, not only from, as you mentioned, the pharmacological or the uh, yeah. it, like the evaluations. But even just embracing the outdoor uh, yes. risk, like I think this was a huge, huge loss, like to really yes. think about, hey, you know, we want to res research uh, our economy. Let's let's, you know, the markets they are outside schools. We could we could. I mean, there's a lot of places down south like uh, like your neck of the woods where you could easily be 
educating kids in an outdoor space if that was truly the concern. When the weather is 70 and sunny and you don't have schools in a park, uh, it's a missed opportunity, as you point out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's I mean, for me, there's so many, so many lessons and, and, and things that I would love to see change in the future. But um, the key theme for me is uh, has been just having that data based approach, because this is one thing I don't know if it was the same thing around California, but certainly in, in Ontario, you know, one of the reasons the lockdowns were ineffective was because the essential like huge essential worker areas like within the. Uh, greater Toronto area that like they still had to go to work. They still, they they lived in their multi-generational homes. So these cats have been in lockdown since like October, November, and we still had surges. We still had waves on waves. And because we never dealt with the fire, we didn't deal with what the data was telling us, Hey, these guys are at high risk of being hospitalized, spreading the disease, and we are doing nothing. We didn't do yeah. anything for a long time to address that shit. Paid leave yeah. like mid third wave. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, to me, this is where, where where we like lost, like not following the data and let public health do public health things, man. Let let them let them run this. Like do the things that they know how to do. Yeah. Anyways, I I just no, you're putting your finger on it. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I just really hope that we learn these things. All right. One of the last things I want to hit you up on, Vinay, is that, you know, I don't know about you, but we get a lot of like vitamin D, zinc, ivermectin questions. And I do feel a bit bad that this is one of the areas that seem to be taboo to, to talk about. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't I must say I haven't looked at the, the studies in great detail. Um, but it's, um, I, I'm still surprised at how much people will, will just say, you know, don't even acknowledge such, uh, such intervention, such, uh, uh pharmaceuticals. Uh, wh- what's been your approach when it comes to these, I don't, I don't know the term fringe meds or whatever you want to call them. Like what's been your approach? Yeah. Good. I mean, I think this is this is a tough issue and I'll tell you how I think about it. And this is actually like the reason I think about it so strongly is this is like so close to like what I do. And before I, you know, talk about these COVID treatments, maybe I'll use that Alzheimer's example because I think it allows people to sort of dispassionately see the issue. Here's the issue. Uh, there, uh, Alzheimer's is a terrible disease. It's really bad. Um, and it, many Americans suffer, 6 million Americans by some estimates suffer from Alzheimer's. Um, when somebody's in the throes of deep Alzheimer's, you'll do anything. You'll give them anything for any shot that they will return to who they were. That's what we all want so desperately. If you really had a miracle Alzheimer's drug that could undo Alzheimer's, you just get 10 people with Alzheimer's, give them the drug. It would be like a light switch. So obvious. They're all back to normal. Say, oh, my God, the fog lifted. Thank God. You to prove the drug would be sort of a miracle thing. Uh, we, we don't have that. You know, so. Uh, what's my point here? Um, there have been a lot of drugs developed in Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, they've all kind of not done much. When you launch really large randomized control trials, the vast majority have failed, totally negative, sometimes side effects. Now, finally, they get this drug that comes, two trials. One is like, they're both technically negative by their own primary endpoint, but one, they spin it, they slice it, they salami slice it one way, say maybe some some hint here, you know, and the amyloid's a little bit lower, you know, but we don't really know if amyloid is sort of a bystander, if it's in the causal pathway. And so they get the drug approved and it's going to bankrupt this country. It's going to bankrupt Medicare. It's like a $100 billion drug. Okay, my principles of drug development are, are a few. One, 
these are the principles that I think this is why it's it's like so challenging to talk about these things in the lay public because I don't think people study drug development that much and they may know these principles. One, um, every single drug, success or failure, has a beautiful molecular story why it might help. Every drug that companies pursue, they have a beautiful story. That's why they're pursuing it. Um, if you test maybe 100,000 drugs or 10,000 drugs in cell culture or mice, um, maybe one will have some putative benefit in real people. If you take drugs that just get to phase one testing, um, maybe uh, six out of 100 will actually become FDA approved. The bar for FDA approval is not like you live longer, live better. It's a low bar. So even with that low bar, we're talking about like six out of 100. Um, when you start talking about Alzheimer's, the probability that some compound is going to make someone better with Alzheimer's uh, is very low. So I think one thing that has to enter all these discussions is the pretest probability that some compound, some drug, some supplement, some mineral will make someone with some illness better off than the body's natural way of fighting that illness is very, very low. Okay, so then the purpose of all these clinical studies is to try to pick out the few things that actually work from the sea of things that don't work. And so um, we had a lot of enthusiasm for hydroxychloroquine early on. People said it had a wonderful mechanism of action. It was very positive. There's anecdotal reports. Um, what people don't know is that, you know, I can think of a hundred failed cancer drugs that had like similar promising anecdotal reports and they never went anywhere. And now we've done like many large randomized control trials of hydroxychloroquine. And when you, for different purposes, for like preventing you from getting the virus, from making you better, if you have a mild case, from making you better, if you're very sick. And if you pull all these studies together, there's like no net benefit and maybe even a survival decrement. And so maybe we killed a few people by giving it. That's a hydroxychloroquine story. So now we get to things like vitamin D and zinc and ivermectin. And I've read the meta-analysis um, by Pierre Corey and others. And I guess I am sympathetic to the view that wouldn't it be nice if a drug works? And we all hope for that, like we hope for Alzheimer's, uh, that a drug will help with COVID. But I, I think that I come back to my two principles, which is the pretest probability any of these drugs help is low. So the evidence you need to shift me from that probability has got to be really conclusive. And then some of the classic pitfalls in drug development are here in this space too, which is when you do very small randomized control trials, um, they get very noisy. And so by chance imbalances in, in who happened to be randomized one arm or the other, you can get really big benefits. And so there's this classic fallacy that small underpowered randomized trials, they, they have a high rate of false negative, like you miss a signal when it actually exists. They also have a high rate of false positive when there is a benefit uh, that the signal is exaggerated or spurious entirely. So when I start to look at the literature for some of these things, it looks to me like that kind of literature. And so I, you know, like anybody in science, I'm not going to be able to say this definitely doesn't work under any circumstances. But what I will say is if you enter it with the mindset that most things don't work in biomedicine um, in, when it comes to medical therapies and that the way to change someone's mind about that is to do a really well-powered, adequate, randomized control trial to shift that probability, uh, you have not yet done that. And when you do that, I'll, I'll be the first to cheerlead for you um, because I love that. Um, but if you don't do that, I'm not that excited because I've lived long enough in this business where I've heard 100,000, not 100,000, I've heard 10,000 different cancer drugs and maybe 50 came to market, you know, in my career. Um, so that's my, my general view of this. Um, I think that, you know, the studies are, are, are not quite there. Um, and uh, the last thing I'd say is like, there are some conspiracy theories that, uh, that there's some truth to actually, it's not conspiracy, which is like um, governments and pharmaceutical companies like to test branded drugs and not non-branded drugs. That's of course true. They make more money from branded drugs. And the moment something becomes generic, they try to push it aside often the case. However, in this space, when it comes to SARS-CoV-2, we've already seen that perhaps the single greatest success story is dexamethasone, which is exactly. the cheapest drug on earth. Um, and so I, 
I don't think that anyone is out to get ivermectin. Um, I think a lot of the evidence that people bring forth for why ivermectin works is of low quality, and we've seen it before in other drug classes, and it didn't pan out. And I would just encourage them to do a single, large, randomized control trial, and you will see. Um, but your pretest probability, like always, doesn't matter what it is, it, it's low in my mind. And so, you know, I said from the outset that most of these drugs are going to fail, and most will fail, because the body actually is pretty good at fighting infections, and you're talking about sort of optimizing body parameters, which not so easy to do. Yeah, no, that's very, very well put. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, you need those high, the, the RCTs, large RCTs to really, really, really get a more definitive um, sense of this. And I do think for some of them, they're coming. So, yes. you know, yes, they're coming for all those that DM me, give it a few months. Hopefully we'll have some more definitive <laughs> answers because, yeah, I think we need more time. But Vinay, I can't tell you how much this is meant to Quadcast. I'm going to be selfishly how much it meant to me, because once again, I'll say this, that the amount I've learned, the perspective, the courage that I've gained from hearing you voice your opinion to put out your your op-eds on uh, on MedPage and, and just being one of those guys that are willing to do the right thing has been inspirational. So I, I really commend you and I, I'm really grateful for having you on the show. So thank you. Well, let me toss it back to you. Uh, you know, I just want to say that, um, you know, I'm a big fan of of both your, your thought process, which has always been really spot on, your ability to handle complicated issues and get into the nuance um, and try to be fair. And then finally, uh, you know, your delivery, you've always put out a really engaging um, uh, product. You've not been afraid to, um, uh, to push where it needs to be pushed. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have your voice out there. Thank you so much, my friend. You are, you know, I'm definitely going to be asking to come back, but thank you so much for this. I'd love to. Anytime, anytime. (laughs) Thanks. Quadcast Nation. Did you hear that with Dr. Vinay Prasad? That was fresh. That was dynamic. It's what I like to call juicy fruit. For real. Yo, follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Jump on that Solving Wellness train, yo. Solvingwellness.com. We love you. We want to see, we want to see you join the, the movement. Get our healthcare providers in better shape mentally and physically. Leave that five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a rating. It means the world to us. Helps with the visibility. And listen, y'all stay safe and, and glorious. And we'll connect again real soon. Peace.